The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Tommy's with me today. Uh, We've got a couple of things to get to. I want to remind everybody that if they missed the Cooley breakdown of Justin Fields yesterday to go listen to that podcast, it was well done. He's not a massive fan of Justin Fields. Not in the way that he really, really tried, I believe, to persuade Washington not to take Dwayne Haskins before the 2019 draft. He doesn't feel the same way about Fields, but he definitely likes Trey Lance more uh, than Fields. So go listen to that. He'll have more quarterback uh, film breakdowns um, tomorrow. Um, Wanted to just remind everybody, subscribe if you haven't subscribed. That really helps us because it basically automatically, you know, downloads the show. A lot of you will listen to it ad hoc, which is fine. It's better for us if you are a subscriber, um, which uh, allows for that to count every day. Also, if you haven't rated or reviewed the show, especially on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, um, that would be helpful if you did that as well. That's the purple icon uh, on your iPhone, if you've got an iPhone, that says podcasts. If you just touch that purple podcast icon and search the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast and rate us and review us, that would really, really help if you haven't done that um, before. I did want to mention that the Caps trade, and they pulled off a big trade, um, I had a 25-minute conversation this morning on radio with Tark El-Bashir. Tark is great as a radio guest, covers the team for The Athletic. Um, you can simply go to theteam980.com and listen to it there, or you can download the Odyssey app um, and uh, find it there as well. But theteam980.com, and it was in the third hour of the show today. Just go to the Kevin Sheehan Show at theteam980.com. And uh, Tark was great on the, tr- on the trade. Um, he essentially said they had soured on Verona, um, and uh, this is a better fit. Um, and this dude's another big dude. They've got the biggest team in hockey, um, the Caps do. Hey, Tommy, I did watch the Nats game last night with all of the players – there for the first time this year and what a difference you know Schwarber 
it seemed to make a difference, didn't it? It certainly did. In the first game back with all these guys, um, first of all, Schwarber had a huge RBI double um, in in a in a two for five night. Bell was in the lineup. He went one for three and walked twice. Um, you had Harrison in the lineup. You had Gomes in the lineup. He went two for four. The one thing that I did notice, and I'm sure that uh, Bob and, and FP maybe talked about it, and others have. Um, but I, I have not heard the answer to this. Remember, the idea was that Juan Soto was going to bat second when everybody was back and everybody was back I never last thought night. That. Oh, most people that I talked to thought that no, he was going to no, hit second. No. Second? Yes. He was going to bat third always. Well, that's not that wasn't the prevailing opinion before the season. I don't started. know what what prevailing opinion you're talking about. Everybody's Mark Zuckerman's every Turner single person. I, every single person I had on the show. Well, they yeah, bat. I don't. I don't think you have that right. Oh, I definitely have that right. Trey Turner was always going to bat second if they were going to bowl with Robles to lead off. No, they were going to get Soto more at bats and have him hit second behind Robles. I think this was a delusion in some people's minds. Then, maybe, maybe what 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 the numbers freaks wanted. But no, they never intended on batting him second. That, that, that became a, a a spring training question. I was like, really? He's not going to bat in the three or the four spot? Nope. This is something oh, that's it, that Davey, that they, they, they were thinking about all along, was hitting him in the know. two Again, spot. I don't know. Be, beyond what go, the voices in people's heads, I don't know who was thinking that. I, w- I w- was surprised by it too, but everybody said that that's what was being contemplated. Okay. Okay. It's just must be one of these mysteries that he Well, remember he hit understand. second he hit second a bunch I think at the end of last year. You know, they moved him up into that two spot. And so I that was that, the thinking that year, that was possible. Last year was a complete aberration. Okay. I mean, you know, with 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 a, a healthy Robles and wanting to get the best out of Robles, he was going to lead off if, if if he proved that he could handle it, and so far he has. Am I wrong on this? I I, I could be totally wrong. I, I'm I'm texting Zuckerman right now, uh, and, and asking him if th- this was the thing because now you've got me wondering, and I'm usually pretty sure about what was talked about at least in the last month. Anyway, um, <laughs> yesterday would have been a problem, but a month ago would not have been a problem. Um, but they're not anyway. The bottom line is he's not batting second. No, he didn't last night with everybody back, you know, in the lineup for the first yes. time. Yes, right. Yes, and this lineup is built to protect him, with Schwarber and Bell hitting behind him. So yeah, I mean it, it's de- definitely. I mean Schwarber could be a huge factor for this team. I mean he could hit forty home runs. With this team, it was big for He's him. Capable of it, yeah. It was certainly big for him um, last night, and uh, and to, to 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 debut, you could tell when he hit it how pleased he was. There was a pitching change right afterwards, and he looked like a real happy guy. By the way, what kind of guy is he? Is he a good media guy? Do you know? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. He's considered a good guy, a good clubhouse guy, a good media guy, good in the community. Uh, and uh, Dave Martinez loves him. That's why he wanted to bring him here. And he's got something to prove here, too. So, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the questions about Schwarber are are defensive. How well can he play the outfield? Uh, Dave Martinez, when he was a coach at the Cubs, was the guy who helped Schwarber become a better outfielder, if not a good outfielder. 
Uh, and we still have to see how that plays out. Because when you rely on starting pitching like the Nats do, you're really wary about sacrificing defensively. Right. If Schwarber's bat is 35, 40 home runs, you live with it. Right. Um, okay. Uh, the Wizards won last night at Utah. They hung the first loss at home um, to the Utah Jazz in Salt Lake City. They had not lost a home game. They've got the best record in the NBA at 40 to 14, 40 and 14. It was 40 and 13 going into last night. Um, and, uh, it was their first loss. I think it was their first loss at home. I could be wrong about that too. Um, you know, I think this is this is the start of something big. What do you think? Um, I do think I, I do think that um, that they're so capable offensively when they're healthy. They're just a bad uh-huh. defensive team. Last night they gave up 42 in the first quarter, and they gave up 17 to Donovan Mitchell in the first quarter, and then they they rolled back and they ended up sort of dominating. They had a huge lead; they had a 19 point lead at one point in the second half against a really good you know team, a team that personally I don't think makes it to the NBA Finals, despite the fact that they will you know p- possibly go into the Western Conference playoffs as the one seed. The Lakers healthy will still be the favorite. I think the Clippers are better than the jazz in a best of seven but um they're a really good basketball team really good basketball team and the wizards played well they had basically everybody out there last night westbrook and beal you know they combined last night for really one of their their most solid um performances in terms of not turning the ball over they they only had three combined turnovers uh westbrook had another triple double i mean 25 14 and 14 beal had 34 and the wizards won 125 well um, you know 21 maybe Maybe the new coach will get him to play defense. Um, yeah, maybe. Maybe the new co- coach will get him to play defense. I'm I'm wondering when that new coach will be here. I would suspect it would be next year. That would, would be suspect, my guess. Yes, I mean that's when. I mean that his contract is up unless they so, make sort some sort of you know Dick Mata forty three and thirty eight regular season run to the. NBA title where the fat lady, you know, yeah. is singing. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, you know who Russell Westbrook reminds me of a little bit? Who does it's he not remind a direct you? comparison. Huh? Who does he remind you of? Uh, Dave Kingman. Just puts up go big or outrageous, go home? Outrageous numbers. Mm-hmm. Outrageous offensive numbers uh, like Kingman did. But can't win with the guy. Now, they, obviously, Oklahoma City won with the guy, but he wasn't the only guy they won with. They, they had three superstars on their team at one point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when they got him, I was happy because I think he is entertaining to watch sometimes, although he can be frustrating. And I thought they, I thought they would be better than this. Uh, and I still think they can be better. But in terms of getting out of the Wizards' limbo of success – that 43 to 46 win plateau? No. Not this team. Yeah, well, they're only playing 72 this year, not 80. I, I mean, when, when things are normal. Yeah. Um, the guy that, you know, and I forget if I talked to you about this on the show or not. When they made that trade a few weeks ago and they got Daniel Gafford, um, I, 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 I he was one of my favorite players to watch in college. And, 
like the numbers didn't make sense. Like he was so productive, but he wasn't getting that many minutes, but he was very productive in the few minutes he was getting. Now, sometimes that can be misleading. It can come at an end of, at the end of a game, but in Chicago, he was, his per 36 minute numbers were, were really high. Well, he's, that's what he's done here. He's getting, you know, more minutes, not like a significant number uh, more, but he had 18 minutes last night, scored 15 points, had four rebounds with six of eight. You know, he's done that now consistently for them. He's a real talent. I mean, this this is a guy that actually could end up being a big-time player for them. I, I believe that going forward. Um, they have, you know, they've got a lot of big guys on the team. You know, with Lo- Lopez and Len and Gafford's a true center. Like, he's not going to, sp- you know, spread you out. He's not going to stretch the floor at all. But um, anyway, uh, they won the game. Um and I'm looking at, at Utah's schedule. I was given something early this morning that said that this was their first home loss of the year. Um, and I'm just making sure that I'm, sh- I'm, I'm correct on that. I want to make sure that I'm correct on that because I could be wrong on a lot of things. today. No, it's their first home loss of the year meaning since the calendar turned to January 1. They lost two home games at the start of the year to Phoenix and to Minnesota. There you go. So they've now lost three games at home, but just once this year, Tommy, as in 2021. That may have been a little bit misleading the way it was presented to me. I guess it was. But I should have done my own work on that. You know, well, you're a busy guy. You got a lot of work to do, buddy. I know that. You got um, lots of burdens. So I listen, want... you know, I think there's news. I could be wrong. What? You know, I mean, because I'm not on top of these things as you are. But Washington says they've signed a tight end. Who'd they sign? Sammy Race. I don't know who that Samus is. Samus Race. He's a basketball player. Uh, he... from Chile. I don't know who that the, the Washington football team signed this person to be a tight end. Yes. Okay. Six foot seven, 240 pounds, grew up in Chile. All right. Played well, basketball. They're looking for tight ends. Who did he play basketball for? It's hard to say. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Tulane, I think. I think he played basketball at Tulane. I mean, this is, I'm reading the Washington press release, the football team press release, okay. and, and, it's, and it's written like a third grader, so I can't possibly figure out exactly where <laughs> oh, he plays. Stop. It is. It's, ter- it's terrible. Well, I mean, they don't have professional writers, but the guy, they do a decent job, Kyle and some of the others. They do this a decent is, job. This is Come a pathetic on. piece of work. Okay. I tell you what, well, you go read it. It's a website. And you tell me it's not, it's, in the it's, first three paragraphs where, am where I, he played college basketball. Where I'm, am I going to their website to read this? Well, I found it on Twitter, okay. but it's on their website. Um, but uh, you tell me in the first first three paragraphs. Here it is. Uh, here it is. Here it is. Hold on. Did. Antonio Gates, Tony Gonzalez, and Jimmy Graham were all former Division I basketball players before developing into some of the best tight ends in the NFL. This is not the what, where, when, why. It's not the seven W's, I don't think, to start. But that's fine. I don't think that's the purpose of this. Samus Rays is aiming to become the next athlete to make the transition. He'll begin his football career with the Washington football team, who announced his signing Tuesday. Uh, Ray, Reyes or Rays, 6'7", 240 pounds, grew up in Chile before 
before moving to the United States when he was 14 and starred at North Broward Prep in Florida. The football coaches there begged Rays to play both sports, and he even went through a few practices as a tight end. Ultimately, though, he thought his future was in basketball and getting injured on the football field would hinder his chances at the next level. He never ended up playing a game. Only then... Stop there! Stop uh, yeah, there! Uh, still no Stop college there. mention. Okay. Stop there. Whatever. I don't... This is not... In those first three paragraphs... You should know something about the guy. Okay. Only Besides after playing sparingly school. at Tulane for two seasons did Reyes give football a legitimate shot. Okay. Um, quick update from Mark Zuckerman. Yeah, it was an option Davey was considering this spring. Um, then Trey and Juan got off to a hot start, so now even with the others back, he's hesitant to change it, at least until his lineup struggles, which could certainly happen at some point. Uh, managers are, fun, are funny sometimes. Even if they believe one lineup is better than the other, they don't like to mess with it when it's working. So, yes, I wasn't wrong on that, that people did tell me that Davey was considering um, moving Soto up into the order to number two to hit behind Robles, and then Trey Turner was going to hit behind him, and then Josh Bell. But because of the start without all the other guys, for now, I guess Davey's keeping it where it is. At least I'm not crazy that somebody told me that because I was really starting to wonder whether or not um, I'm getting enough oxygen to my brain in recent weeks. He wasn't the only one who told me. Somebody else, it, might, it may have been Galdi, told me too um, that that was, um, that, that was a, a, a potential plan so Soto would get more at-bats. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Let's, no, let's stop this because I don't want to do, do this. You don't want to do what? I don't want to talk about this anymore. Okay. Because you're, you're going to start going off on the analytics people. Well, I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> okay. Fine. I don't want to uh, Why? I'm people. Not, well, you're just going to crush the analytics people. That's fine. You no, know what? Why don't no. we save that for no. this athletic story on the Philadelphia Eagles? Because that okay. was a great story. What are you? You're gonna you're gonna crush somebody else? Who? One of the no, two I'm people not, I mentioned? You? I like, am not. You love Al and you love else. You love Mark. This. Yes, I do. Yeah. So I can't figure out why you just want to halt the conversation. Now you've got me intrigued. Why okay. do you want to just halt the conversation now? How would Galdi know? Well, what do you mean? How would Galdi know? Galdi, Galdi know probably knows a, more than you do. Goldie probably knows more than you do about the team. How would he know that this is the plan? I don't know. Reading it? Okay. Yeah. If your point is he's not a... Somebody told him. Well, it could be one or the other. It's probably the former with Al, because I know Al well. Al's not a reporter. I'm not a reporter. That's not what we do, but we hear things. Um, But that's, that's... yeah, you're right. We we should stop the conversation now because you're going to go down a path where you're going to be critical about somebody who does a talk show for bringing up the thing that several people have talked about since spring training started. But apparently you missed it. How didn't you know that this was a possibility, that this was being discussed? Mr. Godzilla it, uh, look, versus Kong? That's the only thing seriously. you're paying attention to. It wasn't discussed seriously. I don't know if it was discussed seriously or not. I was surprised when I had more than one person, multiple people, tell me that this was a possibility with the acquisitions that they made. By the way, um, I did want to just... I understand how Mark would know. 
Yeah, I know. Well, Tommy, there's there are things I've known about the football team that you haven't known. Right. Yeah. Right. And okay. What so does you're that acting have to do you're with acting, the baseball team. Well, you're acting like it's not a possibility that a talk show host might know something more than somebody that's covering the team every day. Every day. Of course, it's possible. It's been more than possible with me for many years. Yes, it has. So yes, let, it has. So let me just mention one thing, and I don't have the tweet to go back to here, but somebody sent me a tweet, and when you went on and on about, and by the way, it was a beautiful story about you and your son, and I love the fact that you took videos of your audio. son when he was young, uh, audio, audio, excuse me, audio of your son, you know, asking you all the oxygen those, in your brain again. I, it was audio. It was, it was audio, and I'd like to hear him if you'd ever bring him to the show. But somebody basically brought up the so Godzilla and Kong you're all into, but you won't watch a show with dragons. Good point. Whoever brought that up, I forget who it was on Twitter. Um, there are several things we need to get to, including this incredible story in The Athletic about the state of the Philadelphia Eagles. If you think Washington's dysfunctional, how about Philly now? More on that right after this word from one of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I called Tommy before the show today to tell him and ask him to read the column that was written in The Athletic um, by Sheil Capadia, Bo Wolf, and Zach Berman. I've had Zach Berman on the radio show before. He covers the Eagles. I'm not sure if the other two are Eagles people or NFL writers. Um, But there's a story on The Athletic about the Philadelphia Eagles situation titled Paranoia, Mismanagement, and Office Politics Inside the Eagles' Downfall under Jeffrey Lurie and Howie Roseman. And before we get to the specifics of it, when I read this, Tommy, I thought, my God, there is now an organization in the division, let alone the league, that is more dysfunctional on the football side than Washington's. It also made me think of a lot of other things. What was your first reaction to it? Well, my first reaction is I know what's coming. There's going to be, well, what about? What about these guys? I know we're nuts, but look at these guys. Mm-hmm. They're nuts, too. They're yeah. nuttier than we are. Nuttier. Which which really, wow, it's an, an intriguing story. Very well done. 
I mean, riveting story. Yes. If you're a Washington football fan, should give you no comfort. Because here's the bottom line. With all that lunacy, they've got a Super Bowl. They've got multiple division titles under that crazy owner. And they have a, re- a record of 235, 194, and three. <laughs> you looked that one up pretty quickly. During what, the last 21 years? During Lori's ownership. Oh, during Lori's ownership. During Lori's ownership. So despite the lunacy, somehow they've managed to win. I want to point out before I read some of the um, some of this story. This is a football operations story. This is not the stuff that's been going on in Washington with a culture of, you know, sexual harassment and misogyny, et cetera. There's none of that in this story. This is all about Jeffrey Lurie, Howie Roseman, Doug Peterson in particular. You know, the football operation and what's gone on here over the last few years. Which, by the way, to Tommy's point, I want to remind everybody that when the Eagles won the Super Bowl at 13-3 and in 2017, they followed it up with a 9-7 and season in which they got to the playoffs and they lost, they lost Wentz again, remember, late in that year. And Foles won a playoff game at Chicago and nearly beat the Saints in the divisional round to get back to the NFC Championship game the next year. And then the following year, they went 9-7. and seven. They won the division in, in 2019. And they actually uh, started Wentz. He got hurt in like the first quarter of that game against the Seahawks. And Josh McCown came in and played well, and they almost won that game. Um, last year was the first losing season in the last three years. Doug Peterson went seven and nine, thirteen and three, nine and seven, nine and seven. Won two division titles and won a Super Bowl and almost got back to an NFC title game. This year, in a pandemic year, four eleven and one, they finished in dead last. With that, let me read some of this story because you're right; it is riveting. To, to go through it like I I was hoping there was more and more and more when I got to the end of it. Four weeks into the 2019 season, this is how it starts. Doug Peterson sat down for his scheduled inquisition. All right, 2019 season. Understand that they've won a Super Bowl, that they nearly got to the NFC Championship game the year before, and it's early in the 2019 season. And he sits down for what's called his his scheduled inquisition. The Tuesday tribunals with team owner Jeffrey Lurie and general manager Howie Roseman were a weekly occurrence during Peterson's five-year tenure as Eagles head coach. In the meetings, Lurie, Roseman, Lurie and Roseman questioned Peterson about all aspects of his game management the week prior. Fourth down decision-making, play calling, personnel choices, everything was on the table. Days earlier, the team had overcome a 10-0 second-quarter deficit to beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers 34-27 to to even its record at 2-2. Two two. The offensive key to the win was a steady dose of the running game that took advantage of Green Bay's defensive game plan. Apparently, that was not good enough especially for Lurie. Lurie, who has long advocated the use of analytics, wanted to know why Peterson hadn't called more passing plays. The interrogation was the same after another win that season, this time in Buffalo on a day with 23-mile-per-hour wins. Peterson was ridiculed and criticized for every decision, one source told The Athletic. If you won by three, it wasn't enough. If you lost on a last-second field goal, you were the worst coach in history. 
Following the season, Lurie wanted Peterson to get rid of offensive coordinator Mike Groh and wide receivers coach Carson Walsh. It wasn't the first time Peterson found himself on the opposite end of a disagreement with his bosses over his assistant coaches. After Peterson's first year as head coach in 2016, he fought to keep then-offensive coordinator Frank Reich. Yeah, the Frank Reich, who is now the head coach in Indianapolis and will be coaching, by the way, this upcoming season, Carson Wentz. Um, Peterson put his foot down again with Groh and Walsh, saying he wanted both coaches to return. That's when Lurie reminded the coach who makes the final calls at the NovaCare Complex, which is their their Eagles uh, uh, headquarters. Peterson was given 24 hours to make the moves, according to multiple sources. If he didn't, he'd be fired. A source close to Lurie says the owner never gave Peterson an ultimatum, but the next day the Eagles announced that both Groh and Walsh had been let go. A year later, it was Peterson... Um, who was let go, um, who declined comment for this story. Lurie and Roseman also declined to participate in this story through a team spokesperson. Now, I'll get to some of the other parts, but I want you, Tommy, first to give everybody a brief summary of this story so we don't have to read the entire thing. I'm sorry. Could you please ask that question again? Were you not listening? No, I just wanted to, I didn't understand the question. Would you summarize in your own words the story so we don't have to read through the entire thing? I read the Me? first few paragraphs. Yeah. I, well, I, your, the, your the summary. summary is you have, uh, you have an owner who's, who thinks he's a football expert. The thing that struck me uh, in the story was how they outlined how he has a office above his garage where he watches football films. That's a good constantly, point. right? You know, like like college football games. You know, senior ball, all this other stuff. Uh, so you have an owner who you have an owner who who's a draft fan, that, and they said that's what he specializes in. He thinks he's an expert on the draft. He thinks he can scout college football players from watching these films. That was that was remarkable to read that. Okay, so. Let's start there. I want to go back to the analytics guy that they hired because I think there are a lot of money ball comparisons when we get to that. But Tommy um, hit on a part that I also would have included in in a summary. And I'll read from basically the first two paragraphs of this portion of the story. Shortly after Jeffrey Lurie bought the team from Norman Brayman in 1994, that guy, did he end up in jail, Tommy Brayman? No, you're thinking of the owner before oh, him. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I forget who he was, but uh, who had a gambling problem. Right, the gambling problem guy. Um, yeah. SI's Peter King wrote in 1994, Hollywood producer Jeffrey Lurie is a member of the most rabid subspecies of NFL fanatic, fanatic the draftaholic. In recent years, he has prepared for the league's annual college draft by holing up in the media room above the garage of his Beverly Hills home and watching tapes of the blue-gray game, the Japan Bowl, the Senior Bowl. Lurie would have them all on his big screen surround sound TV. That passion remains strong. According to multiple sources, Lurie devours tape of college prospects and is an active participant in the pre-draft process. Those who have, ex- who have experienced that process acknowledge its murkiness. Often there's no explanation given when the team strays from an established draft board. Sometimes, as was the case with J.J. Arcega-Whiteside selection in 2019, Lurie puts his thumb on the scale when the team was prepared to make another selection. In that case, they were prepared to take Paris Campbell. Lurie wanted Arcega-Whiteside. 
Um, yeah, that is, can you imagine, like, in the early days of Snyder, remember, there were always the stories of Snyder being, you know, out, you know, working out, you know, receivers and holding a stopwatch and timing people, um, you know, in, in 40 times. I don't know how much of that was ever really true or not. I really don't. You might have a better sense of that. But Lurie clearly is involved. He is now, you know, the the one guy, remember, um, when Washington selected um back in the uh in the two thousand whatever draft that was, two thousand two draft, Patrick Ramsey was at the two thousand two draft. Apparently that was a guy that Snyder really loved and Spurrier said, Well, go ahead. I've got my guys. But Lurie's really apparently involved in the draft process. I mean and and, and again. I mean, I mean, I guess what we could we saw what evolved with with you know a Super Bowl championship team that disintegrated so quickly. I think we had an inkling that that was a dysfunctional organization, based on the fact that there's nobody left there hardly from from the Super Bowl champion team a few years ago. Uh, and uh, but I don't think anyone knew it, it was like this. I don't think anyone knew the coaches were being berated uh, over over their play calling in win, in wins, in victories. I had no idea. I had no idea really about the Philadelphia situation until the Wentz story started to come out. That was really the first inkling, I think, that Philadelphia. Well, that was a couple of years ago. Well, no, the the stories this year towards the end of the year about how Wentz was, you know, a tough guy to deal with. Part of this story, I know that, but a couple years ago, there was a Philly writer who was a friend of mine who writes for the Philly Bro- Voice who broke the story about how uh, Carson Wentz was, was a divisive figure in the, in the locker room, didn't have a lot of friends, and uh, was difficult to deal with. And he was berated by media members for writing that story. Who was the guy and that wrote the story? he turned out to be spot on. Yeah. Huh? Who was the guy that wrote the story? Joe Santaquino. I always mispronounce his name wrong. Okay. Um, so He's a boxing writer. So <laughs> a, a big portion of this story is to talk about Lurie's, the, the owner's, involvement. And Lurie's relationship with Howie Roseman. Because Roseman is the only survivor of a team that won a Super Bowl a few years ago. The head coach is gone. The starting quarterback is gone. The owner prefers Rose, uh, Howie Roseman. There's a lot of... Uh, of that's written in here that really almost makes Howie Roseman out to be Bruce Allen for Dan Snyder. Yes. There's a lot of cover that Roseman and a lot of heat that Roseman's taken from the fans and even from others in the organization. And this is one of the thoughts as to why Lurie ke- keeps Howie Roseman on. I thought that that you know, analogy was a decent one to draw. There were several different things in here um, uh, about just that relationship and Lurie deciding to keep Roseman. But here's the most intriguing part of the story for me. The, the Tuesday meetings Peterson basically grew very tired of, you know, being questioned every single week after, you know, a couple years, that, you know, a year and a half after winning a Super Bowl and still, you know, having a, a competitive team. And I'll read this section because I think this is fascinating and it just reminds me so much of Moneyball. Like it reminds me, well, I'll get to that in a second. Over time, the Tuesday meetings wore on Peterson. 
Lurie has long considered the organization at the forefront of innovation, and the impression among Peterson's supporters in the building was that Lurie's weekly questions were largely based on post-game reports produced by the team's analytics staff. Sources say Peterson was beaten down by the constant second-guessing. They treated him like a baby, one source said. Alec Hallaby, the Eagles' vice president of football operations and strategy, has worked under Roseman since joining the team full-time in 2010 and now runs the team's four-person analytics department. The young executive with an Ivy League pedigree carries with him the kind of reputation that causes football lifers to scoff. And according to multiple sources, a rift grew between Hallaby and some members of the coaching staff and scouting department. Quote, within the building, he's perceived as Howie's guy, one source said. That's a problem. No coach wants somebody around who they think is undermining the perception of how well they're doing. To some, Hallaby is something of an interloper. They say he carries influence with Lurie in part because of a close relationship with fellow Harvard grad Julian Lurie, Jeffrey's son, who stands to one day take over the family <laughs> business. To others, to others, <laughs> Hallaby is brilliant and simply willing to fight for what he believes is right. The more nuanced opinion is that Hallaby is in a no-win situation boxed into a specific characterization by the non-traditional football background he shares with with Roseman, and a personality that makes him a square peg in a round hole. The blurriness of Hallaby's influence on the final decision makers creates rifts throughout the organization and contributed to the iciness between departments. One source described the analytics team as a clandestine black ops department that doesn't answer to anybody except the owner, even though Hallaby officially reports to Roseman. During the 2017 season, which was the Super Bowl season, Hallaby's and Peterson's relationship soured to the point where Peterson berated Hallaby with an earshot of the rest of the office, according to sources. In the opinion of some members of the coaching staff, Hallaby was not to be trusted. Frustration mounted on the scouting side as well. Rather than being presented with reasons for where certain draft-eligible players were rated by Hallaby's department, the scouting staff would simply be given a list of players by the analytics department that they liked. According to one source, a top personnel official was upset to find out Hallaby was grading players on his own despite never having been trained in the scouting department's methodology. Lurie's investment in analytics is substantial. In addition to Hallaby's staff, I did not know this, by the way, Lurie uh, purchased Warren Sharp of sharpfootballanalysis.com, who provides a weekly offensive game plan report during the season. Let me stop you there. That's a big problem for Warren Sharp. It is now. Yeah. I mean, because... I mean, the, the idea is, I mean, if you're collecting a paycheck from the Philadelphia Eagles based on your reports, how can anyone believe, how can, how can you have any credibility with what you write or say about the Philadelphia Eagles? That's well, a problem. Well, right he, I, I don't, I mean, I'm sort of familiar with Warren Sharp, but. Is I like it, him. Okay, I mean, he's just an. Uh, what is he? Just a PFF comp- competitor, a pro football yeah. focus competitor. Yeah, I mean, pro, uh, fo- yeah, pro I football focus has relationships with all thirty-two teams now. Right. Uh, for me, I would be. I would cast doubt on anything this guy posts concerning the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, I wouldn't worry. But if I, if I were him, I would imagine 
that the biggest source of revenue comes from clients like teams. I mean, at least that's what it is with pro football focus. Anyway, um, was there anything else from this particular um, – Any uh, to me – just to hear that Peterson was basically berating Hallaby. It's like Art Howe. It's like Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, berating Billy Bean, you know, um, and in and, 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 and the movie. And it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole money ball situation. Football guys that are just eye-rolling on the analytics guys. The irony here is that the eye-rolling from football guys to analytics guys in football probably is more appropriate. Analytics in football is a really hard thing. I don't want to get into the the debate on this because it's deep. But the bottom line is, a lot of these services that are called, you know, that provide in a lot of these departments in these organizations that are analytics driven. If if the analytics um, don't include understanding what you know, eleven men's responsibilities are on every single play. It's really hard to measure it accurately all the time. It's a bigger debate, and I understand that. But baseball is a lot more measurable than football. A lot more measurable. But anyway, I thought that that was um, – the Eagles The Eagles are a mess right now. They hired this coach, Nick Sirianni. This guy looks – it really sounds like he's just a puppet for Lurie and Roseman. Nobody had this guy on any list to be a head coach. I know. I know they really sound they really sound like like a mess right now, in terms of uh, you know. But but again, I mean, through all this, they've been a winning organization. They're the most successful organization in the division. You know what? It's, for the past, you know, arguably, maybe that is the you know really ultimately that's. It's much more important. They are now. They don't look like they're going to have a good team this year. And they were four no, they eleven don't. and one last year, and they traded Carson Wentz after giving him a massive contract. They've made a lot of mistakes, um, but I think the the big takeaway here, to your point, it is fair to say if you're an Eagles fan, hey, shut the fuck up, the rest of you. We we just won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, and we've had a hell of a lot more success than any one of you. And the Giants won two Super Bowls. Yes. Um, the, certainly more than the other two dysfunctional teams in the organization. The, the you know the Skins and the Cowboys. Um, with that said, though, you know what is really revealing, and I just didn't know a lot of this, is how hands-on Jeffrey Lurie is. By the way, much more hands-on than Dan Snyder. Snyder's, it would appear to be the case. Now, Snyder's um, dysfunction comes from a lot of things, including on the business side of the organization, um, and obviously with the culture that was created in the organization. But Snyder's involvement, you know, it has been destructive and it's been relationship driven, you know, whether it was the relationship with RG3 and I'm talking about over the last 10 years, obviously he fucked up in 2019 going in and telling his scouts and his staff, no, we're hiring, you know, the kid that went to the same high school my kid went to, you know, that's destructive. I mean, that's a first round pick. And he took a guy that most teams had a second or a third round grade on. Um, so 
I don't know that Lurie's done that, but there is more in this story about the draft and why Jalen Rager was taken last year right before Justin Jefferson was taken. You know, that was a, a at least through a year, that appears to have been a big mistake um, by the Eagles. Lurie, Lurie's very involved and still super passionate about the draft, super passionate about, you know, analytics. You know, what's really interesting, Tommy, and I've mentioned this a lot over the years when, when playing the Eagles or watching Eagles games with Peterson. Peterson really did, you know, in terms of like two point and fourth down analytics, he coached, you know, new wave. You know, he went for fourth down much more often than most yeah. teams. He yes. went for two, yes. you know, um, much more often than others. And, and it didn't always work out for him. Really didn't work out for him a couple of times this year. I think it was against the Giants. Or maybe that was last year. I forget. But, um, yeah, uh, who knows what this, you know, Siri, Nick Sirianni is going to be. I mean, he was on – he was the offensive coordinator – for Frank Reich in Indianapolis last year, but the Eagles certainly would. This this is a really they're. they're I, I would urge anybody to go read this story. I guess you got to you know, subscribe to the Athletic if you haven't. But I've told you before, it's totally worth it. Um, and this was really really well done. Uh, there's just a there's a lot of stuff there. They did mention briefly the the tank job against Washington to finish up last season. Um, there was uh, a real misunderstanding in this story about what drafting Jalen Hurts would do to Carson Wentz's um, sort of leadership ability. People really liked Hurts. They didn't really like Wentz. Um, that was a problem. Look, Washington went through that. You know, with RG3 and Cousins, everybody in the building knew Cousins was better and they had a better shot, but Griffin was the number two pick in the draft. Um yeah. So well, here's what Washington fans don't have to worry about. Probably, any debate about analytics in their front office, because as as I perceive it, uh, the guy in charge, Ron Rivera, <laughs> is not a huge analytics guy. Right. right. No, he's a, he is he's, uh, a, he's a coaching guy. instincts guy. He's a follow the gut guy. Oh, the other yeah. the other thing I was just going to say is this is one of those things where. You know, if Dan Snyder reads this story, you know, and he has any desire to get back involved and more involved than he maybe he even has been over the last 10 years. I mean, Lurie and Roseman in that situation on the football side, Lurie has been, again, to your point, the results have been much different. So, you know, drop the mic. I mean, whatever Lurie and Roseman have been doing, it's a lot better than most of the teams in the division, even if it doesn't seem like the right way. But it, it does seem like we may have caught them here at the beginning of a downswing. I think so. Maybe. I mean, eventually that behavior will probably catch up with you at some point. Unless you can continue to find coaches that basically don't mind being puppets. And I'm not, I, I don't know if that's going to be the case with Sirianni. There's a line in this story at the end about Sirianni that, that sort of, um, uh, after, after they fired uh, Peterson, um, oh, by the way, uh, all of the Philadelphia media, which is a tough media town, they were berating Lurie with questions about why Roseman wasn't fired because that's who the, the fan base, I think, wanted fired as well. And Lurie, during one of those press conferences, it was written, Lurie seemed almost incredulous that Roseman was a subject of intrigue. 
You know, this is almost like you needed the hashtag fire Bruce Allen to even make the owner aware that people were, uh, were, were had a problem with, with Bruce Allen. Um, yes. But he was much more sort of reclusive um, publicly than Lurie's been. But anyway, um, a week later, uh, after the coaching vacancies had already been filled around the league because they fired Peterson late, Lurie kicked off a search that started with 25 candidates and was pared down to 10 for interviews. Sirianni was not considered a frontrunner for the job at the outset. He didn't interview anywhere else in 2021 and was not among the initial wave of interviewees. In the phone call offering Sirianni the job, Lurie stated that he was so incredibly excited for the coach, you are and the coach you can become. An outside perception lingers that Sirianni offered the Eagles a coach of least resistance for management's involvement. But the but they also point out that the same was said about Peterson five years ago. But, yeah. but we knew who Doug Peterson was. Nobody yeah. really, unless you were in Indianapolis, I mean a really hardcore on the AFC South, knew who Nick Sirianni was. Or if you did know he, who he was, you didn't know that he was going to be a, become a head coach this year. You know, this, this sounds like what a lot of people have seen happen in baseball to some extent, uh, where the coach basically carries out what the front office wants them to do, all the way down to who plays and who doesn't. Well, it's it's Art Howe and and Brad and Billy Bean and and but, um, but it took years Jonah for that Hill, to, Peter it took Brand. Years for that. Yes, you're right. But it took years for that to really take hold in baseball. And if I, I mean, there's a lot of teams now that hire managers of course. Who, 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 who they know will do what the front office tells them to do. The I, Nationals are not one of them, but mo- a lot of teams do. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand. Th- this is so, th- that model is so much more prevalent in baseball, but it's also more yes. proven in baseball. Yeah, if, if you count the Houston Astros – I guess, uh, and you take out the cheating. I'm not so sure it's it's proven. Yeah. <laughs> um, from uh, my good friend Al Galdi, <laughs> as I bring it back one more time. Yeah, that was the plan. Important thing is that he bats no lower than third. Two best hitters should be two three. Davey has just done it, Turner Soto instead of Soto Turner so far. Even though that was the plan. Um, well, let me apologize for that. Yeah. It's all right. Okay. I'm no. I'm no. And, and let me ask you a question. I'm just glad I I, I, I let me ask you a remembered question. it correctly because I'm usually pretty good with memory things. At least. Why don't you Google month. Dave Martinez Juan Soto batting second in the lineup? You know, I, maybe I'm not using like the, like the she and search. No, engine. I did. I I did it right when you mentioned that to me, and and the only and, and, and I found the stuff from last year in the bubble. Right. Um, or in the uh, you know in the uh, shortened season, I'm right. just telling you that I, I mean for a moment I thought I was going crazy, but I'm glad that Zuck and Galdi um, at least told me that I wasn't crazy. That there was a lot of it discussion. It was never the plan. It was well, Mark Zuckerman covers the team and he does a damn good job doing it. You didn't you didn't just you mentioned Galdi, but I mentioned said, but I, Galdi said it was but the I plan. Meant, but I mentioned no, I mentioned Zuckerman earlier. I told you what Zuck just texted but did, me. Did, did I read that say to you. Did you, plan, did you forget? Or was it something that they were considering? Uh, it was it was an option. Davy seemed to really like this spring, but then Trey and Juan got off to a hot start. So now, even though the others are back, he's hesitant to change it. Um, 
When we come back, uh, Kuyper has his new mock, which has Washington taking a quarterback in the second round uh, and some other interesting uh, possibilities. Plus, um, Steph Curry last night set the all-time Warriors scoring mark, breaking Wilt Chamberlain's record. More on that right right after this word from one of our sponsors. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know how you shore it up. I mean, he's making from everywhere. Now, he has two right there, and that and look, he knows. He knows. Just got himself the record. He passed Will Chamberlain on the all-time Warriors scoring list. Steph Curry last night became the all-time points leader uh, in Golden State Warriors history, a history that includes Philadelphia when they were the Philadelphia Warriors uh, in the 60s. And Wilt Chamberlain, you may have heard of him, played uh, for them. But Steph Curry became the all-time leading scorer in Warriors history. By the way, he had 53 last night, and he broke the record in the first quarter. He needed 19. He scored 21 in the first quarter uh, last night. Now, that's not the, the, why I bring this story up. I bring this story up because I saved this for you because I talked about it on radio yesterday. Um, in, the, um, in these days leading up to him becoming the all-time Warriors leading scorer, there were a lot of different players asked several questions about Steph Curry, and one of them was, is Curry the best shooter of all time? I think you know my opinion on this. I think he is the greatest shooter I've ever watched in my lifetime of watching basketball. Reggie Miller said, he is, he is. Uh, I always thought that Petrovic was, um, but we played the same position. I had to see it up close. I thought he was the greatest shooter that I'd ever seen up, seen up close, but Steph has just taken shooting to a different level. Dirk pretty much said he's definitely got the quick release, the high arc. Uh, he, he, you probably have to put him at number one. And Jerry West, probably an opinion that you would um, value more, said, quote, I think to this point in time, yes. But you must remember he's creating another group of shooters that are going to try to emulate him. Will they work as hard? Will they be as creative with their dribble? Will they be able to finish shots around the basket? People just talk about his ability to make shot after shot after shot. That's remarkable in itself. But to me, maybe the most remarkable thing is how is the most remarkable thing at all is how he shoots shots from everywhere. And I think that is a very underrated part of his game. And I think Jerry West nailed it on that. I Kurt- think Jerry West had, had the smartest take of all on that. Look, I would agree. He's probably the greatest shooter in the history of the NBA. He's revolutionized the game or he's helped revolutionize the game. Not in a way I prefer, but I can't, 
dispute his impact on basketball. And like Jerry West said, there's lots of kids out there that are practicing to be uh, Curry right now. And there may be a better one that, that comes along. But uh, he's I, I would agree that he's the best shooter I've ever seen. He is definitely the best shooter, and I've mentioned this to you before. To me, he's the best shooter ball handler in one body I've ever seen before. You've always said it's Maravich, and I've said the, uh, you know, I don't remember Maravich except at the very end with, like, the Celtics, maybe briefly with the New Orleans Jazz when they were playing in the Superdome in, like, the mid-'70s. Um, but Isaiah Thomas would be the comp for me in terms of a ball handler shooter in one body. But we never we never got a chance, obviously, with Maravich and really not even with Isaiah, even though the three point shot was around, to see what they what Maravich could have done with the three point shot. And it wasn't an emphasis for Isaiah Thomas. He averaged basically one and a half three point attempts, you know, a year, you know, during his best years in Detroit. So, you know, if he had been given the green light and if the game was similar to the way it is today, I think Isaiah Thomas had that kind of ability that Curry has as a combined ball handler shooter. But he's a better shooter than Isaiah. Um, And he's the greatest shooter I've ever seen. I mean, there are guys like to me, Reggie Miller is the greatest catch and shoot guy I've ever watched. There's no guy that was better coming off of a screen, catching it, squaring up, and getting it out of his hands quickly and being such a pure pure shooter like Reggie Miller. And and I'm talking about in my lifetime, you may have some guys. Larry Bird was a fucking great shooter. Sometimes I don't think he's high enough up on this list, but Larry Bird had the picture-perfect shooting form, and even with the lack of athleticism, the understanding of the game and the and the ability to create space, and by the way, his size, great shooter. Ray Allen was a great shooter. I think Ray, Clay- Allen, is, Ray Allen is one of my top shooters of all time, top I- scores. I mean, what a great jump shot. Picture perfect. Clay Thompson is really a great shooter, one of the all-time greats. Um, Also a great uh, catch-and-shoot guy, um, but also does it off the dribble. Now, the thing about Curry, he can catch and shoot, but he really creates his shots off the dribble. And the only thing I would say is, so it sounds like we're not going to disagree that much on this. Um by the way, Durant's a phenomenal shooter. Dirk was a phenomenal shooter. And then you have all those three-point specialists, you know, whether it was Kerr or Peja or, um, you know, um, there, there are a lot of other guys. Hey, what about your boy Legler? Tim Legler could really shoot it, man. He yes, really he could. could. He would have been perfect in this era. What really has changed the game, for me anyway, more than just the proliferation of three-point shots – is the distance of the three-point shots. And this guy, Kirk Goldsberry, who writes for ESPN.com, wrote about this like a year or so ago. And it's one of the things I've talked about for a few years now is the the the, the dimensions of the floor, the geometry, if you will, of the, the actual playing floor changes because of the distance of the three-point shot. Steph Curry, basically, Dame Lillard, they shoot just inside half court. Not at the end of a quarter or the end of a half or the end of a game. You know, in transition, they pull up from 40 feet. And so when you have to defensively guard guys out to 30, 35 feet consistently, it just creates so much more space. And in in basketball, spacing is everything. And that's what's really changed the game. It's been really hard to stop teams from scoring when they've got guys you've got to guard out to 35 feet, certainly 30 feet. 
And that, I don't know how you're ever going to change that. Like, I don't know what you could do defensively. Um, what, what you could do is you could shorten the shot clock. More people could get more aggressive in half-court trap defensively um, to bring down points. But you, we're living in an age right now where so many teams are basically impossible to stop. We talked about the Wizards and how bad they are defensively, and they are bad. But the truth is it's not like there are any great defensive teams. The best defensive teams, Tommy, tend to be the teams that move the most offensively and make you work on defense so you're a little bit more worn out offensively. One of the remember a few years ago when the Spurs were always rated super high defensively? Yeah, they had some good defenders. Draymond Green was a hell of a defender. Klay Thompson was a really good defender. Steph Curry wasn't a great defender. But really what it was is they were making you work so hard on defense and they were scoring and and putting more game pressure on you and because you worked so hard defensively it had an it had an effect on the other end that's why you'll see a lot of coaches in college in particular we don't want to take that first open three we want to make you work defensively we know if we make you work defensively it's going to be easier for us defensively to guard you and I think that's what, that was a lot of what the uh, the the um, Warriors were a few years ago when they were not just you know winning titles and scoring lots of points and making three after three, but they were also ranked very high defensively. I think a lot of it was how good they were offensively and how hard they made teams work defensively. I'll tell you what, man. If you got if you got to pick up a guy when he crosses half court because he's in range, that is no fun. No fun. And that's where the games change. It's the three-point shooting, of course, but it's the distance. How far back these guys go to shoot it. I'm sure Maravich would have been the same, and I'm sure Isaiah and a lot of those guys from the 70s would have been the same. Who would have been the best three-point shooter of that era, of the 70s, your era, when you played for the Knickerbockers? I'm not so sure. Maravich was a scorer as much as a shooter. Right. You know, I mean, Maravich... Average 44 points a game in college basketball. I know. D- Division one college basketball without the three-point shot one season. So, I mean, I don't know who the best shooter would be. Rick Barry. Uh, among, oh, there you go. Rick Barry. That was easy. You're right. Right? Definitely Rick Barry. Yeah, in terms of what he would have been had the three-point shot been around? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Phil Chenier would have been a hell of a three-point shooter. He would have been a great three-point shooter. He hey, really... by the way, I just I just wanted to tell everybody, you know who's on Twitter? Earl Monroe is on Twitter. Okay. I just, it's, it's a new thing. Earl just joined Twitter, and Earl Monroe is one of my favorite players. So I'm following him on Twitter, so give him a follow. Um. All right. Let's follow the Pearl on, on Twitter. Um. You know, uh, there was one other quick thing that I wanted to mention. Um, uh, It was um, yesterday, I think, Steve Kerr said something about last year, or recently Steve Kerr, the head coach of the Warriors, obviously, had a comment about last year. You know, last year was a disastrous year with all the injuries and nobody playing and whatever they went, 15 and 50 or whatever their record was. Um, Steve Kerr apparently said about last season – 
that he enjoyed last season more than Kevin Durant's final season with the Warriors. That last year, speaking of the final year that Durant was there, was tough. There was a lot going on that some of you don't know about and some that there was a lot going on, excuse me, some that you know about and some that you don't. That was very difficult. Kevin Durant, of course, retweeted um, this guy that, that basically put, tweeted out the comments from Kerr saying, this is hilarious. <laughs> Durant is so sensitive. So sensitive. Yeah, he is. Um, all right. I uh, wanted to finish up with uh, Mel Kuyper's latest draft board. We'll do that right after this word from one of our sponsors. One more plug for the radio show, um, team980.com. I did an interview this morning, Tommy, with this guy, Kurt Badenhausen, um, who used to be one of the guys at Forbes that uh, generated the Forbes sports team valuations each year. Uh-huh. Now he's at a, okay. a, a at a place called Sportico. Anyway, the reason I had him on initially was because he had written a story about Hideki Matsuyama that he'd be able to essentially parlay the Masters win into 600 million in in lifetime earnings. Andy North um suggested that it could be worth a billion dollars to Matsuyama. Um, and that was the reason for having him on. He, he, this guy was really good, and I would urge you to go back and listen to it if you have time. But anyway, um, there was something else that came out of it. I said, I didn't know, by the way, that he was one of the guys at Forbes that had done the valuations, but um, I, I, he had written on his Twitter page that he was the sports valuation guy and that he used to be at Forbes. So I said, were you one of the guys? He said, yeah, there were two of us that did that for years. And I, and I said to him, I go, so tell me what you think about the Washington football situation had it you know been sold had this thing you know developed differently and Snyder had been forced to sell and he said well the latest valuation was 3.4 billion dollars in Forbes but that isn't reflective of what it would be worth if it hit the open market he said he he, he said there was a lot of conversation between bankers about what Washington would be worth if it were sold it would have been the biggest sale in North American sports history. It would have gone easily for north of $4 billion, and if there had been multiple people involved, it could have sold for closer to $5 billion. Wow. And he made the point, I made this point too a few weeks ago, that you know Snyder's buyout of Fred Smith and Rothman and, and Dwight Char at a $2.2 billion valuation was a bargain for Snyder. Yes. It was an absolute bargain. Now, it was always going to be a lower valuation because it was a minority you know, stake that they had. But still, he said, yes, yeah, Snyder got it at a deep, deep discount, which just tells you just how badly these guys wanted to get away from him. And he said the other thing that was discussed in sort of the banking world as it related to them was, you know, it was going to be hard to find anybody – to pay, you know, top dollar um, for the minority shares that Smith, Shar, and Rothman had, because it was a limited marketplace because of Snyder. That there weren't right. a lot of people that wanted to buy into a minority share and be there in an organization with Dan Snyder, and that's ultimately why the minority shareholders just said, you know, to hell with it. I'll, we'll take the two point two billion dollar valuation just to get rid of this thing and get out of here. Um, so the, it, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, anyway, I, I wanted to end the show 
with Kuiper's latest um, mock draft. He did a two-round mock draft this morning, and I think it's really interesting, and it's a follow-up, too, to some of the conversations that Cooley and I have had. He does have San Francisco selecting Mac Jones at number three overall. Cooley thinks there's a chance that Trey Lance would be a perfect fit and isn't you know, dismissing that it could be Trey Lance that the 49ers traded up to, to select. Um, and then he's got the Dolphins trading up to Atlanta's number four spot to select Kyle Pitts. Many people believe, and I would probably subscribe to this, there, uh, this, this idea, that Kyle Pitts is maybe the number one guy on most people's draft boards. He's just not a quarterback. Um, so he's got Miami trading up a couple of spots to draft Pitts, and then Cincinnati takes the tackle, and then Atlanta at six takes Trey Lance. And then the next quarterback to go is the Patriots in a trade with the Cowboys at 10. They take Justin Fields. So five quarterbacks in the top 10. What was really interesting about this is he has Washington taking the Notre Dame linebacker Owuso Koromoa at 19. But then he did a two-round mock. And when we get to the second round, and there have been a lot of quarterbacks mentioned, a lot of quarterbacks mentioned, you know, Kyle Trask, Kellen Mond, Jamie Newman. Kuyper has one quarterback taken in the sixth round, and he now believes the second round. In the second round, thank you. He now believes that the sixth best quarterback, the quarterback that will be taken after the first obvious five, is Davis Mills, the quarterback from Stanford. And he has Washington selecting Mills in the second round at 51. Kuyper said on on one of the shows this morning, and I was watching it, that he doesn't think that Mills really is a second rounder. He does believe that the NFL and many many scouts are trending towards him being the first a, a quarterback to go after the top five. He's got a third round grade on him, but he doesn't like any of the quarterbacks. He said Mond and Trask are dropping. It doesn't surprise me about Kellen Mond. I'd be surprised if he ended up being the sixth pick. I'll be honest with you. I watch a lot of college football. I didn't watch a lot of Stanford this year. Um, Davis Mills was apparently the highest recruited um, high school player at that position coming out. Um, And, you know, he's like a 6'4", 220-pound pocket guy. You know, all the highlights you see of him is him playing with a knee brace on. Like he looks – you know, and Stanford is one of the few – few remaining schools in college football that play a total NFL offense. You know, it's what they they, they do. Um, they, they run the ball. Quarterbacks always under center. You know, it's essentially what David Shaw's had in place since he's been there. It's a very conservative NFL-style offense. But Davis Mills and, you know, everybody suggested, Kuiper suggested this is the name that's going to get talked about more and more and more as we approach the draft. And my only comment to that would be, if that's true, somebody's going to take him at the end of the first round. Nobody's going to let a guy that is the next best get to the second round where they don't own that fifth year in a contract, especially if he's going to come in and sit behind somebody. You know, if, if Mills is really the next guy, Tampa with their final pick in the first round could take him. Um, you know, there are teams like, you know, the, 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 the Saints and Pittsburgh, you know, later on in the first round. You know, that's the thing about quarterbacks. You know, you, if you're not going to play them right away, 
to learn whether or not, you know, you're a couple of years away from picking up that. You're getting them on the cheap, but you're also getting the fifth year with, with the first round designation. So I would bet that the sixth best quarterback in this draft goes at the end of the first round. That's what I would bet happens today, that somebody ends up trading up to the end of the first round or somebody like Tampa takes their quarterback of the future at the end of the first round so they own that fifth year uh, or the fifth-year option well, on the player. If if Washington drafts him, I heard the plan is to bat him second. <laughs> Very good. Bringing the whole show full circle <laughs> is Tom Lavero. All right, what else you got? You got anything? I got nothing else for you today, boss. Um, read that story. If, you, if you're if you an athletic subscriber, I'm telling you, the Eagles story was really well done, and it really gives you a picture of the Eagles. I knew that things weren't great. I had no idea about how involved Jeffrey Lurie was. No idea. Yes, I'd, I'd recommend if you're a Washington football fan, read it. It'll make you feel good. <laughs> well, I don't know if it'll make you feel if if it'll make you feel good or not. It, it's you made the. I think you made the best point. It's like however it's working there, they actually have been winning, um, but not last year and maybe not this year. I st- I still think they have talent. Um, by the way, another part of that story: the best players got preferential treatment from the owner. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Um, Very familiar. All right. uh, We're done for the day. I'm back tomorrow with Cooley. He'll have another quarterback uh, film breakdown. I think he's going to do Zach Wilson or Mac Jones. um, Maybe both of them. Uh, So back tomorrow. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.